the spirited singing, the wonderful prayer that we have collectively prayed together, the enjoyment of fellowship one with another. What a tremendous and marvelous privilege we've had already today. And now as we continue to think more specifically about some grand lessons from the Word of God, perhaps we may be challenged, encouraged, edified, and exhorted to be drawn even nearer to our wonderful Heavenly Father. As you may have noted from Brother Adam's reading earlier, taken from the 15th verse of the 9th chapter of 2 Corinthians, where in fact on that occasion the inspired apostle said, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. We shall arrive at one point in the lesson where we will provide a bit more attention and emphasis to that text. But I have entitled the lesson to lead up to that point, The Greatest Gift. Some introductory thoughts, I suppose, with Thursday's Christmas Day ahead of us may well be the following, where we might think a bit interestingly about the nature of a gift and then draw some spiritual lessons, of course, related to it. The holiday season, this Christmas season that is shortly upon us and for many of us has now already become to be underway, is a very precious and wonderful time for many individuals indeed. An opportunity for the youngsters to be away from school for a few days, perhaps even a month. For those who have employment to perhaps at least have a day or two to be away from the office and the workplace. Children, of course, think so brightly and brilliantly with eyes all aglow about the arrival of Santa Thursday morning. They, in fact, look forward to the opening of gifts and the excitement that fills their life to obtain something that perhaps they've desired. For those who appreciate more clearly and dramatically the gathering of families and the fellowship, gratitude, thankfulness, and love that's shared around the dinner table and the kindness to be seen on occasion with the exchange of gifts, all of that in terms of the season is upon us. Perhaps you've sent Christmas cards or received them that pronounce a message of happiness and peace and joy. It is a season where those kinds of ideas seem to ring more loudly and seem to be presented more often. As one ponders, though, the character of a gift, might I submit to you that none of these things I've mentioned yet begins to even approach the greatest gift that the human family has ever received. And so it is this morning I would beseech you to study with me some passages from the Scriptures in which we will turn our attention, not to the description of the exchange of gifts like we've mentioned already, but the greatest gift of all. That gift is highlighted in so many passages, and I've attempted to extract a few of them, and I would ask that you draw your attention to them with me. First of all, let's define more carefully the whole kind of idea that surrounds the notion of a gift. Put very simply, a gift is merely something that in fact is given to another to show friendship, thankfulness, affection, gratitude, and love. It is something that an individual, not because he or she is forced to, not because he or she feels it necessarily incumbent upon them, but due to an interest to express to another the heartfelt feeling that is ours, chooses to give a gift or to present a gift to another. Isn't it interesting to consider that in that way, a gift must follow the directive of a choice that's made. In fact, can it so directly be said that a gift is free if one is forced to give it? If, in fact, another makes the one give the gift? So often as we ponder that character or that aspect of a gift, we have reached this season of the year where that certainly is before us. 
It might be at this point I would, though, ask you to perhaps go back in the recesses of your mind or maybe to think about what you've seen in your children. Isn't it amazing to see that excitement that's theirs when they arrive near that night of December the 24th, they perhaps climb into bed extraordinarily earlier than usual. Maybe they find themselves getting up over the course of the night with a flashlight to find out what may or may not have been left. Maybe that degree of excitement can be asked about us. I again have noted that the greatest of all gifts is not them. How do you and I respond in excitement to this greatest gift of all? Are you and I as excited as they are on the evening of December the 24th? Do we, in fact, fill our lives with that great smile and look forward to the events and the great blessings to be enjoyed at the hand of God himself? This greatest of gift, I submit to you, will challenge us to think about a question like that. A gift, as we appreciate it in a physical way, is something that is genuine. It's something that's practical. It's something that's needful. It's something that addresses a very important aspect of a person's life. I might submit that we ought to think about this greatest of gifts in that very same set of ways. So far, the, my mention of the word gift at times has seemingly been of a physical nature, and at times it has seemingly been of a spiritual one that has been purposeful because the Bible itself uses that word in the same two sets of ways. There are occasions when the word gift is employed in the sacred scriptures to identify and refer to an exchange or a gift of something physical, a present, if you please. Not many months ago, in fact, in 2 Samuel 8, verse number 2, you and I studied in, as we prepared for the Bible Bowl about a gift given in a physical way. It was nothing more than that. And many other occasions in the Bible would, in fact, present the same idea. In total, that word gift, or some form of it, occurs 112 times in the King James Version of the Bible. Many of them, in fact, have reference to this giving of a physical gift. But in fact, many, many of them refer to a spiritual component. It refers to something not merely as an exchange of something that is to be held in the hand. It seems to be much deeper, much richer, much more elegant than that. It is to that latter part, I would ask you to remember texts like Numbers 18.29. Even in the Old Testament, God made specific statement to ancient Israel that as they were to give the gift of a heave offering unto the Lord. There was a statement about a gift they were with enlightened heart to present to God and express to Him the thanksgiving they felt for the grandeur of the blessings that they'd received from His hand. In 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, maybe we each can remember that list of spiritual gifts that the Corinth, in fact, enjoyed. Sometimes they abused them, but nonetheless, Paul wrote to that congregation and enjoined them to appreciate the measure of those spiritual gifts and to use them properly and to use them appropriately. And perhaps in light of all those ideas, we are now prepared, at least in mind, to address the greatest gift of all. For you see, it really is that of a spiritual thrust. It really is that which draws our attention to a spiritual focus. And so with regard to that greatest of gifts, perhaps language like this would proceed us along that direction of study. 
We have mentioned it in a Bible study class this morning, and now let's look at a number of passages that identify in the clearest of ways how that Jesus is, in fact, the greatest of all gifts. I've listed some of the features that I think we could well appreciate about the greatness of that gift. First of all, the nature of that gift of the Savior is able to forge and establish the greatest of all friendships and the greatest of all fellowships. And thus is one component of the formalism of the greatest gift of all. In Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 14 and 16, we notice on that occasion that the inspired apostle said, speaking of Christ, for he is our peace. Direct association, he, namely Christ, is our peace. Two verses later, he would go on to say that by his death on the cross, we have been reconciled to God. We have been reconciled to him. Forging thus the greatest of all friendships and fellowships, what could not be enjoyed without him can now be enjoyed with him. You and I, apart from Christ, cannot enjoy full fellowship with the Savior. We can't enjoy full fellowship with God. We are in fact distanced from him by our sinful lives. And yet, by virtue of the sacrifice of the Savior, God's giving of his Son, we can thus wipe away that tarnishing mar of sin and enjoy the full fellowship with God. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. 1 John 1 verse 7. Thus, just as surely as God is in the light and we are enjoined to walk in that light, we can walk then in the precious places and in the glorious lifestyle that not only is pleasing to Him, but that redounds unto us to provide for us that greatest of all blessings of fellowship. Is it not still the case that blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ? Where thus are all those spiritual blessings found? In Christ. None thus must be found outside Him. And hence, one of the aspects of this greatest of gifts is that it allows us to enjoy the greatest of fellowships. But in the second place, not only is that marvelous aspect wonderful in terms of the greatest gift, one of the words that appeared in Ephesians 2.14 was this, He is our peace, P-E-A-C-E. -E. Maybe that harkens in our mind to the fact that one other means of interest is that Christ, as the greatest gift, brings the greatest peace. He does. He brings the greatest peace. Even in the early part of the heart of the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 9, verse number 6, that great messianic prophet of old had this statement, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Even Isaiah had the clarion call through the years that there's one coming, and he shall be the Prince of Peace. Is it any wonder that Jesus said in John 14, 27, My peace I leave with you? And isn't it still the case in Philippians 4, 7 that the peace of God passes all understanding. You and I as Christians then have the marvelous and rich privilege indeed to pillow our head at night knowing if the morning shall never come for us in the flesh, 
we can be carried on the wings of those who are beyond the realms of visible sight to rest in the glorious bosom of our Savior one sweet day, knowing forevermore heaven shall be ours. The confidence, the hope, the trustworthiness that we have in the peace in life because of the greatest gift ever given. Often that word peace does seem to be mentioned much more often this time of year. But it still is sad that so much of the world doesn't know peace. It's marred in turmoil and fighting and strife. It's often marred in great battlements. But yet there is a peace of God which passes understanding. And that peace is embodied in the very nature of Christ in John 16, when he said, The world brings you tribulation, but you be not afraid. I have overcome the world, he said. I have overcome the world. Paul knew about that peace in life. He knew about the peace that God could offer. And you and I can still know well about that today. Two aspects then about so far the greatest of all gifts. But what about a third one? That greatest gift answers the greatest need of my life and yours. In fact, answers the greatest need of any human life. Many verses, in fact, lead us to appreciate the nature of that greatest of needs. If one were to ask just a random person on the street, what is the single greatest need of your life? Some might say food on the table. Some might say a roof on my head. Some might say clothes on my back. There's no question that the physical body needs those things. I'd submit to you those are not the greatest need of anybody's life. For in fact, Jesus promised all that would be given, but there was something he said that rested higher than all of it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He affirmed in Matthew 6.33. But let's make a quick visit to a few other passages. In Matthew 1.21, the opening chapter of the New Testament, the angel appeared to Joseph, encouraging him, Be not afraid to take Mary as your wife. He said, she's pregnant. She's going to bear a child. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There's the greatest need, to be saved from sin. There's the greatest need, to find a means, to have a means provided, whereby one can be saved from sin. Call him Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. That embodiment, of course, came to fruition when Mary did give birth, and they called him Jesus. Notice a few other passages, though, where Jesus himself uttered similar remarks. Not long before he was nailed to a cross, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is no access to God. No thoroughfare to the Savior, if you please, apart from the pathway in which was paved by our Savior. Do we not read in texts such as Hebrews, the sixth chapter, that in fact He is our forerunner that leads us to God? And in Revelation 14, 4, Follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. If you and I thus follow the Lamb, the Lamb having now advanced to heaven, we shall thus be where He now is. Jesus was the means whereby you and I could be saved from our sins. For isn't it still the case that neither is there salvation in any other? For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved. 
That famous refrain from the mouth of the Apostle Peter in Acts 4 verse 12 reminds us still of the fact that the greatest gift answers man's greatest need. These three points have only encouraged us to think about the fourth one. For is it not fair to say that this greatest gift was motivated by the greatest love? When the Savior came to the world... When he, in fact, left the portals and the grandeur of heaven, the very fact he mentioned in John 17, verses 3 through 5, it reminds us still that you and I, it's not that we begged God to send him. God made the first step. God, out of his love for us and where we were as lost from his loving side, needed someone, needed a means to be able to be reconciled to him. And God took the initiative out of his love for us to send His Son. That golden text of the Bible is still one that's been committed to memory by so many. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Maybe we've all heard James Watkins make reference to that verse and emphasize the adverb so in that passage. God so loved an adverb of manner that identifies the magnitude and emphasis of the verb that follows, which is love. God loved us to the point, to the extent, to the magnitude that He sent His Son. Paul, in fact, joined that chorus, didn't he, in Romans 5, 8, when he said, But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were, you see, His enemy. We were those that did not have fellowship with Him, and yet God led His Son to die anyway. Isn't that love now? Isn't that a testimony to the greatness of God's love for us? This greatest gift, then, to which we've turned our attention helps us see that it's emphasized in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, in words like this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be made rich. You and I have nothing of our own volition to offer God. We were absolutely bereft of everything worthy, and yet Christ died for us, and in that death gave us the possibility of being rich in God's sight. That church in Laodicea thought they were abundantly rich and blessed in every way meaningful. And yet Jesus very profoundly addressed them in Revelation 13, Revelation 3, verses 13 to 17, and said, You're blind, naked, wretched, miserable, and poor. They had nothing whereby they were worthy in the sight of heaven. And yet, notice they were asked, Repent and do the first works. And then, I'll stand at the door and knock. If you'll open the door, I'll come in and sup with you and you with me. They could enjoy the fellowship with God never they could enjoy, thinking that they were wealthy on their own part. You see, that greatest gift allows us to appreciate the greatest love ever extended to us. That love is only magnified when we appreciate that this greatest gift has the most lasting and greatest effect. Have you ever been in a position of perhaps receiving a gift? You receive the gift and by the afternoon of Christmas Day, the gift is torn up. It doesn't work anymore. Or perhaps you receive a gift and a couple of weeks later it's sitting on a shelf collecting dust and no longer is there any benefit to be enjoyed from it. 
that isn't true of the greatest gift ever given. For this gift has not just a week's benefit, not just a month, not just a year. It has the kind of benefit extended in verses like this. In Matthew 25, 46, the very last verse of that chapter in the book of Matthew, we find the Savior giving a description of the fact that there were some on the left who would receive everlasting punishment. But to those on the right, he said, they entered into life eternal. How long is this gift going to be worthwhile? How long is the benefit to be enjoyed? It's not even for the fullness of the rest of my life on earth and yours. Once a person becomes a Christian, that benefit is forevermore. Eternity, literally, is what's under discussion. But that's only one text of so many others. In Romans 6, verses 22 and 23, Paul reaching the crescendo of that discussion about being freed from sin, he said, You have become the servants of God, and the truth of life redounded unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. And he goes on to describe it in these words, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life. That's how long this blessing will last. Isn't this a wonderful gift we've been given? Only extended in verses like 1 John 2, verse 25. In that simple, brief little verse, even a different apostle, John, said, This is the promise which he hath promised us, even eternal life. I'd submit to you that's a wonderful idea. This gift doesn't just last for a little while. Its benefit isn't just for a short span of time. It literally is forevermore. Didn't Jesus, in fact, encourage Martha in that way in John 11, verses 25 and 26? He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live again. And he that liveth and believeth in me, he shall never die. Never die. Those aren't just my words. The Lord said that. That no doubt was a great comfort to Martha, to Mary, even to Lazarus, whom he was shortly to raise from the dead later in that same chapter. Today, the benefit of Jesus truly lasts forevermore. I would encourage you, if you're not a Christian today, an invitation is going to be offered in a little while. Already at this point, ponder the greatest gift ever offered to you. Ponder how serious that is. To turn that aside, to ignore the greatest gift ever given. Maybe that only leads us to ask, this same greatest gift has the greatest practical benefit. Sometimes, have you ever been given a gift by someone who meant so well, but it was a gift, perhaps an article of clothing that you didn't particularly like, and it ended up going into a drawer never to be worn? The gift wasn't practical for you. Not that you didn't appreciate the person's thought, and not that you didn't appreciate the objective that they had, but the gift wasn't for you practical. That can't be said of this greatest gift. Even John the baptizer said in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. That word taketh in the Greek is active in terms of the nature of, it, of its description. It's an active verb. Not as though it could, it might, it can. It takes away the sin of the world. It is the only means, by the way, by which that sin can be taken and removed. This greatest of gifts can accomplish that. It can make that, in fact, occur and take place. In Hebrews 7.25, 
we read about the nature of this greatest gift in these words. He is able to save to the uttermost those that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. Those that come to God by Him, there's that greatest gift again, Jesus. They, in fact, will be saved. Two chapters later in Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 15, we read one other aspect and picture of this greatest gift. On that occasion, we learn this. Speaking of Jesus, For we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. That's to note verse 15 of chapter 4. The nature of that gift, the nature of what Christ offers you and me, is something that truly is magnificent. It's oh so ever splendid. It's not that we rely on the blood of goats and calves and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean. It's not that we, in fact, have to rely upon a man to enter the most holy place to make sacrifice for us. The Lord did this. Hebrews 9, verses 26 and 27. These aspects of the greatest gift challenge us to notice some other aspects about it too. Consider this with me, if you would, please. This greatest gift has the greatest genuine value. We've noted earlier about how that sometimes a gift may to you and me physically not appear to be of great value. Surely we would be very remiss not to see the value in this greatest of all gifts. May I ask you to notice again that verse that was read earlier. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. What is the significance of that word unspeakable? Why did Paul use that? Why did he not say, thanks be unto God for his gift? Paul employed this adjective, this word in the King James, it's unspeakable. That word means indescribable. It means that which is beyond the capability of words to fully fathom and describe. May I submit that that's an apt way of describing this greatest of all gifts, isn't it? Jesus, as we've already seen already, is that gift of such value that it answers the greatest need in life. It prompts us to appreciate the greatest love. It formalizes and presents to us what we needed the most. Notice that the word indescribable thus is very appropriate. And Paul knew it well. For did he not say in Philippians 3 eight, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and to count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of God by faith. To note that same verse and the two that follow it. It is an amazing thing that Paul said, this greatest of gifts is to me everything. And by the way, did we not sing that together just a few moments ago? Number 624, we sang that song. In it we said to Him that He is our everything. We sang together how that He as that greatest gift means everything to us. Oh, that we meant fully what we sang. Oh, that we appreciated the thoroughness of the things that we uttered. As we ponder the nature of that thought by Paul, perhaps Peter also enjoined it in 1 Peter 2, verses 24 and 25. For there he made reference to the cross and said that he and his, as his body hang on the tree for us, that he bore our sins 
on his in his body on the tree he bore my sins and he bore yours there was no way those sins could be taken away apart from him and yet he gladly lifted them put them on his body and took them to the cross isn't that the greatest gift that our savior did that for you and for me that gift is something that words themselves fail to fully describe. Paul said it's indescribable, it's inexpressible, it's unspeakable. To say all of that is to say that there is thus one aspect of this gift that we should think about for ourselves. So far, all the things I've shared have been from the Lord's perspective and basically from, from God's perspective. May I ask, what about our perspective? In light of what we've learned, it's fair to say this gift we've studied should be received then with the greatest excitement. It should be received with the greatest desire of the heart to appreciate it. That now is the question that I asked us earlier. Do we receive it that way? Do we treat the services of the church or other aspects of the programs of the church as light, trivial, unimportant? Do we see our own forgiveness of sins as something not of greatest import? Friend, it is the greatest thing in life to appreciate what we have to enjoy through the hand of the Savior. And do I look upon it with excitement, with energy, with fervor, and with ardor? Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is true that Christ died to establish the church, Acts 20, 28. But in a very real sense, it has a personal tenor to it, doesn't it? He died for me, and He died for you. May we be grateful. May we be thankful. May we, out of a heart of gratitude, thus strive to not be unprofitable servants, Luke 17, 7, but to, in fact, respond to Him with an active life of zeal and energy on behalf of Him, Titus 2, 14. These aspects and thoughts challenge us perhaps in one other way to see that value and to see the way we should respond. Have we read lately Matthew 13 verses 44 to 46? Two parables Jesus uttered. One's the parable of the treasure hidden in a field. The other is the parable of the pearl of great price. In each of those instances, what was it that happened? There was a treasure hidden in a field. A man sold all that he had to obtain possession of that field. Friend, in light of the greatest gift, have we given up anything and everything that would stand in our way of obtaining the eternal life offered by the Savior? What about the pearl of great price? Here was a man who gladly exchanged everything to obtain that pearl. God has offered to you and me the greatest gift are we letting Satan hand us a handful of rocks when we could have the greatest of all gifts? That's what Satan will try to do. He'll want to exchange your eternal soul for a handful of hell. Are we going to exchange our soul for that? Are we going to buy in and give up the greatest thing we have physically, our eternal spirit, in exchange for hell itself? Those questions perhaps lead us to close our lesson by making one final observation. The observation that in terms of Jesus being this greatest gift, to reject Him would be the greatest rejection. 
There might be many things in life that a person can reject. Many may offer to sell him something. No, thank you, I'm not interested in buying. Many credit card companies, in fact, flood our phones with messages, and we're happy to reject that. But, friend, if we reject Jesus, as we've already learned, there is no other way to heaven. There is no other means of forgiveness of sin. There is no other means of standing right before God. And hence, to reject Him would absolutely be the greatest of all rejections. Some passages that challenge us in that way. In Mark 12, verses 1 to 12, the Lord spoke about a husbandman who had a vineyard. He leased it out or allowed others to work in it. And when the time came for the harvest, they beat his servants. They, in fact, even when he sent his son, cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. The Lord asked the question, what will the owner do to those husbandmen? Well, those who heard responded, he will deal with them in an appropriate way. Notice they had rejected the son. They had rejected him, and the Lord was going to deal with them sternly, powerfully, and eternally. It will be no different for us. If we reject the son... We have nothing but sadness to see as we stand before Him in judgment. You rejected the greatest gift ever given. Do you expect me to save you? He said, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Matthew seven twenty three. And so it is to this very morning. In summary, we can say many things about this greatest gift. We've highlighted it to be Jesus. We've highlighted the thought that this greatest gift is such that it answers the greatest need in life. It is such that it's prompted by the greatest love. It enjoins for us the greatest fellowship. It is such that in light of all of that, it has the greatest practical benefit and the greatest value too. To reject it would be the greatest rejection because it is the greatest gift. Today, what about you? Have you received it? Have you accepted it? Have you gladly wrapped your arms around it and lived your life in compliance to it and with it? Jesus, the Son of God, is the greatest gift the human family was ever given and shall ever be given. It is in the founding of the church that we can become a part of that group of individuals that honor and praise that gift and are so very eternally thankful for it. Today, if you're not a Christian, don't reject that gift any longer. Jesus, in fact, made this statement to you. You need to believe Him to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His glorious name as the Son of God and then be baptized. And in that act, you have shown a public means of accepting that gift. He'll add you in fellowship to the church. You then can live life faithful and obedient unto death. If you have begun that walk, but you no longer are faithful to it, Notice you have thus apparently lost sight of how precious this gift is. Come back to the first love. Let again a re-justification be made in your life. If we could pray for you today in the forgiveness of sin and the strengthening of life, we'd be happy to do it. Brother Harold has chosen a hymn of invitation at this time. If you need to come forward, please do so and accept the greatest gift that was ever given. Let us stand together and sing.